So number one for me, above anything else is sustainability. Is the business sustainable? Is it going to be here arguably three, five, seven, ten years from now? You're getting a 10-year SBA loan. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. Welcome back, Monday Millionaires. We just had an incredible conversation with Bruce Marks. SBA lender at First Bank of the Lake, experienced entrepreneur, somebody that we both know, you know, pretty well at this point. We've been working with Bruce and for some time in the the business buying realm. What did you think of the interview? Bruce is such a great, he's such a thoughtful commentator as a lender about the puts and takes of business buying. I thought it was incredibly insightful and kind of the, the mentality of a lender, what lenders are looking at because, and, and we, we hit this multiple times throughout the interview, a buyer is looking at and analyzing a business. A lender is analyzing a business and a buyer that I think a lot of business buyers don't fully appreciate. And when, and we talk about this, the importance of kind of selling your personal brand and selling yourself as a buyer, not just to the seller, but to the lender, to the broker, just a lot of really great, thoughtful commentary about what a lender like Bruce is looking at for someone that wants to be successful in this process. Yeah, for sure. And he's done it over 1,200 times. You know, last count, I think he's had over 1,200 business closings. Among, in addition to having been an entrepreneur for over a decade prior to that, and then also, you know, being now a published author, being somebody who's yeah. very prolific on social media, he's, he's a very interesting guy. I loved hearing from him about what he thinks the qualities of a good business are, what the qualities of a good buyer are, what businesses he hates. The downs, I mean, the risk, right? Business buying and entrepreneurship has risks. And he tells a really potent story that that brings that home. He also has a fear of and a hatred for kayaks. And we, we dive, dive into that. <laughs> we have some fun with that. So we'll invite on a psychologist in the future to talk for about sure. that. Um, for sure. For sure. Yeah, you know, a lot of people that know Bruce from the app formerly known as Twitter know Bruce for his War Story Saturdays, where he posts stories from his years of lending experience. And, and it does bear noting uh, at the outset that this, the sobering story you refer to does involve, unfortunately, someone taking their life. For those of you listeners, we'll interrupt the podcast again at that point. But just to warn you, as a point of sensitivity, uh, that, that topic does come up during today's podcast episode. Yeah, very important point, Kevin. There's some sensitive things that we talk about, but it is a potent representation of the risks in entrepreneurship in life. I mean, I think that that's Absolutely. something that we need to talk about a lot. We need to talk about the, we can talk about the reward all day long. That's easy. We need to talk about the risks and we do that. But there's also just a ton of value, a ton of learning, a ton of really interesting Bruceisms in here. Bruce is, you know, he's he's known for 
saying things like, he's got some pretty notorious expressions that are put on t-shirts and things like that. So I think people are going to have fun listening to Bruce. I know I had a ton of fun talking to him. Absolutely. It was a pleasure talking to him. He's a, a huge resource for the community. So enjoy today's episode with Bruce Marks, one of the most popular SBA 7A lenders in the small business self-funded Bruce service. Bruce Marks. Bruce Marks. Bruce, welcome to the pod. This is a fun episode for Kevin and I because Kevin and I are candidly big fans of, of yours being Thank you. somebody who's been in our space for a long time, somebody who's incredibly well-respected in the search community, the godfather of search, as you would probably <laughs> describe yourself. I'm kidding. So Bruce, you know acquisition entrepreneurship as well as anybody, I think, right? You've been, how, how many years have you been originating loans? Originating loans, 36, seven years. 36. And, and, and you moved into like the entrepreneur, the, the true search fund, self-funded search world, and, and you were one of the first in what year? 2015. 15. Okay. So yep. you saw the way. Yeah, that's when I made my first search fund loan. I was introduced to the model from a guy out of Harvard, Adam Barker, who called me up. I was working at the bank corp at that point in time and said, Hey, have this transaction. Do you know the model? I said, no. And he said, let me explain it to you. And after hearing about the model and understanding it, I just said, this is the future. This is the way to go. Ultimately, I did not even make a loan to Adam because I had suggested that the transaction he was actually looking at was a little bit too big for where I felt would be a good starting place for him. And he took my advice and he bought a smaller business and has become extremely successful. But he first introduced me to the search fund space. And after I made my first loan to a Harvard graduate, I never have done really anything since. And so that was a full two years, Bruce, before the the HBR guide that I always refer to, the HBR guide to buying a small business, which is kind yeah. of the seminal piece in the search fund space was even written. So this was, you were out ahead of the, yes. of the trend. And, and for the audience's benefit, Kevin, do you want to, you want to give, tell everybody what the, what a search fund is for the two people that are listening to this that don't know what it is? You mean the two people that are listening to this? I think that's what you meant. Exactly. I know the two people are Kevin and Eric. So, okay. Great. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, do that's, you, that's do you want to tell our moms? Is. Tell our moms what a search yeah. fund is, Kevin. But, thanks, mom, for giving us a, <laughs> another download. No, it's, 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 a, it's a great point, I think, because we talk so much in the self-funded search space. The search fund model, also known as traditional search, is, is a little bit different then self-funded where you're, you actually go out before your search and kind of market yourself to raise a fund that supports you financially through your search process. And then that fund then becomes your principal financial backers when you find a business. It tends to be larger EBITDA businesses. So you, usually a traditional search or search fund model is going to be your one to two million up EBITDA that doesn't lend itself very well to the smaller self-funded search size. But yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a different animal than self-funded search, right, Bruce? I mean, 
do you still yeah. do a lot of traditional search or I know we do a lot of self-funded well, with it, you, and was, that- was that traditional search Bruce that you were referring to or was it self-funded search? No, it was self-funded because in traditional search, typically they're the, the fund part of the transaction, the investors behind it are going to own the majority and they don't want to provide a PG. And so typically on a traditional search, they're not going to go SBA because they're not going to guarantee. And the searcher himself will own 20 to 25% of the business. Maybe with promote, they might earn a little bit more, but for the most part, they're going to have the lower equity stake and the investors are going to have the higher stake. And one thing I would add, Kevin, is, is that just with the traditional search, they're paying the searcher generally a salary, right? You know, during those year yeah, or two, it's a, generally it's a, a supported, couple of years, right? To support it's a financially them. supported search right. where the searcher and they make it their full time job, right? They make um, it their full time is- job. And I remember a very interesting case way back when when I started was two brothers who had come out of the traditional search because they weren't successful finding a correct target for the investors. And yeah. they said, you yeah. know what? We've they're, Unfortunately, their dad had passed away and left them some money. And they said, we still don't want to give up on the model, but we're going to do it ourselves. And we're going to go from traditional to self-funded because we think that there are some good targets and we presented two traditional to our investors, some good targets. They just didn't bite, you know? So they didn't like them. Yeah. yeah they didn't yeah. like it. So it's interesting how you can, just because you start in one, whether it's traditional or self-funded, that doesn't mean you're just stuck there. You can cross over. You can go from, hey, I'm a self-funded and not find one and say, whoops, I need to now get a job and I need some money and I need the help of people that can support me and go to the traditional route when you started it and vice versa. It just happens that way. Well, and it's also an interesting point because it highlights the fact that that no model really is the end all be all, right? Cool. They all yeah. have, they all come with their trade offs. And, you know, for all the virtues of the search fund model, you can do larger deals, right? Things like that. It comes in a trade off, right? You're much more beholden to your equity investors than you are, say, in self funded, where they're more minority investors. Right. It's still very much driven by the searcher. That may be very appealing to you as a searcher. But there's a trade-off. You can't do a $20 million deal as a self-funded search unless you just have a massive amount of family wealth behind you or something, for example. So it's a a great highlight also of kind of, as you look at these models, you you have to pick and choose what are the puts and takes? What are you really after? What can you bring to the table? And that may drive you one way or the other. But let's give some quick context though, right? Because traditional search is pretty much reserved for a very elite level of MBA. You're graduating from Harvard, Stanford, Chicago, because it's a very niche cohort of investors that are willing to take that level of risk. And so the you know 99% of business buyers are self-funded searchers even with investors, they're self-funded versus mm-hmm. traditional searchers. So that's kind of the context mm-hmm. for the audience. And they're different animals because the traditional search, the average buyer, it's more of a, call it a glorified CEO. And I don't mean that as a pejorative, but you take, I think the way the economics really work out is you take 8% of the business to start. And if you hurt, hit certain right. hurdles, you could take as much as 24%. 
which ultimately, if you buy a large business, what you need to do for traditional search and you have an exit and you get to that 24%, it's pretty life-changing money. And it, right. it's great experience also. And what a lot of people, because there's a lot of criticism, why would you buy, you know, why would you go the traditional route and own 8% when you could go the self-funded route and own as much as 100 or even take investors and own 80% plus? And the answer is, well, the traditional route is a very well-worn path, right? There is a group of investors and it's you've got an enormous amount of support and a great path would be do the traditional route, spend a couple of years cutting your teeth, take whatever capital you earn from that, roll it into a self-funded search afterwards. So that's a really good way to think about it, I think. But I interrupted you, Bruce. Keep saying what you were saying because it was good stuff. You know, it, it, it's interesting because in the space that I play, I see the deal sizes that I'm looking at now are getting just bigger and bigger mm -hmm. and bigger. And I'm in now two self-funded search transactions one is 10 million and the other is 13. That's big for self-funded search. I mean, you're talking EBITDA on one is 2 million and EBITDA on the other one is 3 million. Yeah. Traditionally, so that's more, you know, when you talk to the private equity worlds or you talk to the small family office and, you know, you're having conversations with those guys who are like, yeah, we're looking for EBITDA 2 to 10, right? I mean, that's the pretty standard. It's common. Oh, well, how do you separate right. yourself? Oh, we're industry agnostic. Well, so isn't the guy standing next to you, but okay, let's pretend you're unique. Right. But it's like, <laughs> and I laugh because it's the same story, but yet they're unique, but it's interesting how there's so much momentum in this space that the deals that I'm seeing were doing more and more Perry pursue loans yeah. as a result of just this model growing and more so, investors and, wanting and, and to be involved. Are, Bruce, are they genius or are they crazy? Right. Because I look at that. No, I'm serious. I look at that and <laughs> I go, name, no name names. Don't <laughs> no, name no, names. No, no, no. I mean, but. I mean, but think about it. So you go out and you buy, you, you know, you bring equity to the table, you bring investors, you buy a business that has, you know, two plus million dollars in EBITDA and you're buying it for 10 to $14 million. That's a substantial organization. You've got oftentimes north of, 30 north of 50 employees that you're taking over. That seems like an enormous endeavor. But the moment you close that deal, I mean, literally the moment that that deal funds, you're a millionaire. You're a millionaire, right? Your equity value in that deal. And somebody yes. call me out of that because my math, uh, me and math, <laughs> me and math, Bruce. But you are a $983,000 heir. I mean, okay. effectively, the moment that that deal funds, you've basically solidified forever, unless it blows up astronomically, which is rare, but rare. happens. But if it's assuming you're in the 95% plus of transactions, it's probably higher than that, actually, on deals of that size. Assuming you're in the you know significant majority, the moment that deal funds, you're in a different economic bracket than 99.9% .9 of people forever. So I want to yes. say you're a genius on the one hand, but I also want to say you're crazy for buying a massive organization as an outsider. What's your perspective on that? I think, and be yeah. honest, because I know you're conflicted. No, no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But I would tell you that that's why people buy a business. They go in with the notion of, I can buy this, I can build it, I can grow it, and I can sell it. 
And if, as long as I do a good job, to your point, let's say you buy a $10 million business and you get a, an SBA loan, and 10 years from now, it's even at the same value, but you paid off your SBA loan. Now you got a business worth $10 million. I mean, even if you didn't. Even in a no growth scenario. Even yeah. in a no growth scenario. So if you own 80% of that, guess what? $8 million for, as you said, Eric, 99.9% .9 of the people, that's life changing. Yep. That, that is life changing. Life -changing. Yeah. And so, so in, in speaking with searchers every day that I do, right? So I speak to, on average, three searchers a day, on average, three new searchers a day, consistently. And the story is very similar. It's the dream of ownership. It's the dream mm -hmm. of becoming that millionaire. It's the dream of not having to work for the man. It's the dream of not having a W-2. It's the dream of all the things that, you know, we, that you guys yourself took, right? Like, okay, you were at a big law firm. Everybody knows the story. You guys are so well known. And yet here you are, owners of SMB. So you're in the same boat. You took that same risk. You understand it. You're growing a tremendous organization, right? When we started, it was, I remember when we were sitting and you were introducing, this is our model. It was the two of you. And you're like, I think we, we were, I think we were two weeks into launch. I know it. I, I swear. Well, and, and, I, and we started a business that has enormous amount of personal goodwill. And what we did, frankly, is a lot different than somebody who goes out and buys a significant, you know, I'll call it a real business. No, but, and I'm not, and, and yes, the model is different because you started a business, yeah. but the premise is the same. The premise today is the same. Yeah, to build no, for sure. What are the, so, but let's, 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 let's back up though. Uh, one, I want to know. So, it, because we're making it sound like a layup, right? And it's not. <laughs> so how do I get there? I'm, Right now, I'm, I'm in a W-2. I've got some skill set, right? I've been working for a couple of years. I got a little bit of money saved up, not a ton, you know, say 100,000 bucks saved up. Yeah. I love the idea of buying a business, but I don't know where to start, Bruce. You've closed now over 1,200 transactions the last time I saw a number stated, which is yeah. a lot. And frankly, I think you see them earlier than we do. Kevin and I pretty much see them at LOI. What's your perspective? How do I get from, I hate my W-2, I want to buy a business, to actually going and doing what we just described? So I remember a client reaching out to me and he was really had no experience. He said, this is the space that I'm in. I'm really good at what it is that I do. I believe I would be an excellent business owner. I've identified a target. Now what? And a lot of times that's what happens truthfully. And they'll reach out to, okay, they're following SMB Twitter. I don't know. What do we call it now? SMBX or something? I don't, I don't even know. I think we it's call not, it a disaster would be a good way to characterize <laughs> it. <laughs> Are we not tweeting anymore? We're Xing? What, what, what is it that we're doing, right? Like it's, it's like confusing. So people yeah, will reach out and they'll say, I have a, an interest in a business to buy. It happened this week. And said, okay, 
Do you have legal representation? Are you ready to submit an LOI? No. Do you have a template for that? And, you know, support for you guys. I'm saying, hey, you guys need to reach out to SMB Law and they'll provide you with one, right? They'll provide you with a template. And then so normally then that's where a lot of what I'm doing, what you guys are doing, what maybe their deal team is doing if they're hiring somebody to do the Q of E, they're giving them advice. What yeah. they do know is, is that they want to own a business. What they do know is that they feel they have the skill sets to buy it and grow it, make it their own, and hopefully sell it at a much higher price down the road. But there's a ton of people who can provide the expertise to help them all along the way to get there. So what, just to continue on that vein and, and particularly, cause I want to contrast it to what you said with these increasingly larger deals. So someone gets to that point, they've got your kind of typical SBA 7A loan backed acquisition on the line, right? Three, $4 million. What does that look like in terms of how they're structuring that deal? And then contrast that with those bigger deals, because I'm yeah. really fascinated and curious how people are pushing that envelope of the self-funded search space, knowing that the SBA loans cap out at $5 million. Like, how do you do a 10, 12, $13 million deal that involves an SBA loan mm -hmm. and have it still make sense? So walk us through the structure and then contrast those bigger ones. So, like I said, there's a lot of people out there that are providing advice. So when somebody comes to me, we talk about the opportunity. I talk to them about why it's the right one. We go through the deal economics to make sure that it makes sense, that it's going to pencil out, you know, that based upon how much money they have, how much money they're going to have to raise. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are, well, I, you know, only have 5%. Okay, well, then you're going to need a 5% seller note on standby, right? So you, and then you start walking through the deal dynamics and then ultimately saying, okay, it looks like it's a deal that's going to work. Engage an attorney firm, engage a QV, going through all of that process. And it's amazing. I find that the people that are reaching out, they are doing their homework. They're doing their due diligence. They're learning about the SBA loan program. You know, 10 years ago, search fund model SBA were, you know, if you went to a business broker and said, hey, I'm a searcher, the business brokerage community wouldn't even speak to you. Like they wouldn't even talk to you back then, Kevin. They would just go, right. no, show me your personal financial statement. If you don't have 15% to put down, we're not even going to show you the business. Okay. Right. Well, today that's not the way it works. You know that because you, you close deals for searchers well, all the time and you see- Why, that why is that, Bruce? Is it just more familiarity with searchers or is it a change in the supply of searchers? Like, why are they now more receptive? Access to capital is there today for somebody. Yeah, I mean, you know, Eric, because you can take a searcher who comes in and says, you know, I'm buying a $2 million business. We're going to put down 5%, which is $100,000. I've got 25000 and I'm going to raise 75000 and then the seller holds a 5% standby and that deal gets done. 
So you don't need the personal financial statement with a ton of money anymore. That's the way it works. Yeah, that's that's always one of the questions that we get is, how do I get past this lip? Because you'll still get that question, right? And they'll want to know that you have the money. How do you do that? Because the investors oftentimes have soft commitments or they're not committed yet until they know what the business is. So it's a little bit of a dance. What's your advice to searchers on that point? So it's educating the business brokers. And there's a lot of business brokers that are aware of the model. And there are some that are not. And so if I'm a searcher, I'm saying to the business broker, look at, you want to know that I have, if you're asking me for a PFS or you're asking me if I can pull the trigger, you want to know that I can put down $100,000 or $200,000 or $300,000, mm -hmm. right? But let me tell you about what I bring to the table, why I'm the best guy to buy this business. And if you can convince him, obviously, like you're doing with your investors, you're convincing them that they should support you and they should back you and they'll give you money. And it's not, we talk about, and it's not, we talk about we this all it, the time, right? We talk about this all the time, how in the business buying process, it's not just the seller selling, it's, it's the buyer selling, right? Right. They're, it's they're selling themselves to the banker. That's right. To the, to the, to the seller, to the seller's broker, just as much as the seller is selling the business back to the buyer. It's a underappreciated nuance. I think of this space how important, you know, people go into this with a buyer's mentality, how important the seller's mentality really is for a business buyer. And you hit on, to me, the key, Kevin, because what the business broker is afraid of is if I bring 10 buyers to my seller mm -hmm. and none of them pull the trigger, what's yep. that say for me? Yeah. Yeah. At, some point, yeah. at, at some point, the seller's going to go, did I hire the right guy to represent yeah. me in my business? So you have to, you know, it's, this is a little sidebar, but I remember doing an exercise. It was called walk in my shoes. And this is important for people to hear. So, you know, you get a person who's got a size 10 and a person who's got a size five and you trade shoes. You really don't know what the other person is feeling until you try to put that shoe on right? Yes. The shoe's not going to fit. It's too tight. It's too small. It's got heels, whatever the case may be. So oftentimes it would be awesome if the buyer just stepped back and said, to your point, Kevin, I have to sell me mm -hmm. and the opportunity yeah. because the seller, if he cares about his employees, cares about who he sells the business to. Yeah. I had an interesting call with a buyer the other day. He's looking to buy a business. It's in a small little town in the Midwest. And I said to him, if you're successful buying this business, imagine what day one looks like. Like you're going to have all the people in the community at your business. Yeah. Because everybody knows everybody. It's a small community. And you're going to walk down that street literally going, oh, he, he's the new buyer of XYZ company, right? Like that's super meaningful. And if you're the seller and you want, and your name is on that building, yeah, there's just so much to it. So it's not in my mind, it's going and educating the business broker. It's not so much about how much money the searcher has, because as I've tweeted 
a number of times over and over and over again on War Story Saturday. Eric, as you've tweeted, Kevin, I know you have, and all the other people that are huge in that community, it's not about how much money the searcher has that's getting the deal done. That's yeah. not the way it works. That's, re that's really good advice, Bruce. You know, I, somebody asked me today, like, why are business brokers so terrible, right? And my answer was, well, they are terrible, but they're terrible because you got to understand how difficult their job is, right? They, they take a good business to market. If they take a good, decent business to market, they're going to get hundreds, 500 plus inquiries. They got to figure out who's serious and who's not. Are, are they going to be able to call all of those people back, return your voicemail super fast? Absolutely not. This is not realistic. Emails, inquiries, they cannot go out to all of those people. And then I made the mistake having dinner with a business broker a few months ago going, I don't get it. What's the big deal? If a business falls out, there are plenty of buyers who will swoop in and take that good business, right? And his response was really impactful. He said, well, no, because that seller is going to feel a lot of irritation and they're, they're going to lose trust with me. And if that happens, we may not be going back to market. And if, right. even if he does, he may not be going back to market with me. And That's so right. if you put me in a position where, and it was actually in reference to something that was popular in SMB Twitter about somebody who had walked away from a deal for you know, a specific reason. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about it walking away from a deal with it, you know, because of information that you knew before closing and whether or not that was appropriate. And the broker had very strong feelings about it. We were on opposite sides of this. He was saying, hey, we put 700 hours into a transaction by the time we get to closing. You can't just walk away a week before closing due to information that you knew before you signed the LOI. It's just not an acceptable way to do business and it will get you ostracized from the broker community. And so anyways, the point is, if you walk a mile in that broker's shoes, you'll put yourself in a position to be able to sell to them. You understand their incentives, you understand right. their concerns, and then right. you can pitch yourself appropriately. So I think that's really good advice, Bruce, and it kind of ties the whole the, thing together. And I got also just a couple of quick points as well. It's important in what we do every day in our lives, how we separate ourselves from the pack, right? If somebody comes to me, Bruce, why are you different than the next lender, or if they come to you, Kevin Wyatt at you at SMB are different than the, the next law group, right? I always try to coach my potential borrowers and talk about when they are making that sales pitch to the broker or the seller, how are you differentiating yourself? What are you doing that's going to make a lasting impression on them? Mm -hmm. And it's not your personal financial statement. It's yeah. just not. I mean, unless it's a whopper, well, right? What? Unless it's a what? really, really <laughs> yeah, juicy it's one. Mind-blowing. How does someone, I've been seeing a lot of- I'd love to see your personal financial statement, Bruce, while we're on the topic here, but we'll do that off air. Can you pull that, can you pull that up on the screen? <laughs> I've been ahead. seeing ahead, a lot Kevin. of commentary of really young searchers closing deals. And, and to your point, of it's not the strong personal financial statement. Mm -hmm. I agree a hundred percent, but there's always got to be something else as well. Right. And sometimes it's mm -hmm. a no brainer. Sometimes it's a supply chain based business. This person has an MBA in supply chain from Harvard. They've been doing it for 25 years. They're in their forties or fifties mm -hmm. or, or whatever, like no brainer. No I mean, brainer. the person right. was qualified as qualified could be. Right. But flip that to a 
26-year-old searcher who has an undergrad in English literature, just finished their MBA last year, and has two years of work experience as a consultant at BCG, right? They don't have the wealth. They're going to have to go out and raise capital. They've never done commercial landscaping before, but they show up on your doorstep with a five and a half million dollar commercial landscaping deal. How do you analyze the searcher and what goes into, they don't have the personal financial statement. They don't have the work experience, but I'm still going to take a shot with this searcher. Like what goes into that analysis? Yeah. So the questions that I ask that are very meaningful to me is why is the seller selling? Okay. I, I want to know why the seller is selling. I then want to know about the seller. I want to know three specific questions. And I ask. And just to, and sorry to interrupt. When you say you, you're talking about as a banker, not as a searcher. As a banker. Someone brings this deal to you as a banker. I These thought are that was your question. You want to know how but, I, know, it, but, no, but I think that it the is. Interests, I just want to clarify for listeners. But the interests are aligned, right? I mean, the bank is taking a big risk on the business. Yes. And so whether yeah, you're buying sure. it or you're lending out, I mean, I think that right. the That's concerns right. are the same. That's so, right. anyways, be for sure. yeah. so the three questions I always ask my potential borrowers to find out is, when did the seller take his last vacation? Where did he go and for how long? Those are three extremely important questions because if a searcher says, yeah, the guy lives in San Diego and he went down to LA for the weekend, but checked up on everybody while he did, that's a me business. And you're not going to be able to replace anybody in a me business. So that's a deal that I'm going to advise them, hey, that's going to be a tough deal to make to make for you, in my opinion, right? Sure. Then I'm going to get very granular on this, Kevin. Tell me what the day-to-day responsibilities of the seller looks like. What's his day look like? What's he do during the day? What skill sets does he have that you'll need to have to replace him? Can you replace him? How long will it take, do you think, to replace him? I mean, because as I call it the three G's of a good deal, lending to good people, buying good businesses with good, strong cash flow. And you if stole that got- from me, Bruce. That's, yeah. that's misappropriation. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you have to know that this person that you're lending to is the right guy to or a woman to lend to, right? It's the right person to lend to. And the only way you can figure that out is what experiences do they have and what experiences do they need to have to be successful in replacing the seller? And if you get the sense that they're putting themselves in a position, if, if it's that young searcher and surrounding themselves with the people to give them the experience to be successful, you're willing to take a bet on that searcher, even if they don't already have that experience. It depends, you know, if there is a secondary tier of management that is there for them. Yeah. 
The worst thing, and I've said this many times, by the way, the worst thing that you could do as a person buying a business is buy a business and then your staff come to you, ask you questions, and you can't answer them. Yeah. That's a great point. It is it's, a really good point. That's not, that is going to be very difficult. That's a great point. So that's where I start, Kevin. So I, I, you know, for me, this is not about me. You know, I am very fortunate that where I am in life, I love doing what it is that I do. That's why I do it. I don't have to do it anymore. It's different when you get up in the morning and come to work because you want to, not because you have to. And so I don't, when I look at a transaction, I don't look at it like, oh my God, I've got to get this deal. I've got to do this deal. I've got to get this deal in. I need another deal. I don't. I'm putting the searcher first. I'm putting that business first. I'm putting that client first. And if I don't think it's but a you're, good you're, deal, but, but you're also sneakily competitive, Bruce. I mean, you... <laughs> Let's, I mean, let's go. Well, as you always once told me, as you, as you have very well informed me, you're not going to win them all. You just have to win enough. And I bought into that philosophy, Eric. Thank you for sharing that with me, by yes. the way. All yeah, the credit it's good, it's to good you. It's good sales that's advice why, I learned. That's why Eric's never been to the Olympics. Okay, this, Bruce. This is, all right. This is advice that I learned as a small child selling candy, pretend fundraiser candy bars outside of the local stadium to pay rent that, you know, you're not going to, not everybody's, you just got to get enough, you know, he's got enough. On. That's right. I'm kidding. That's, that's not, right. Not but I story. think that, that, that as you work in this and realize you can't do every deal, you're only one person, you're not going to do every deal. You just want to make sure they're the right deal and you're but doing it for the right reason and you're lending it to the right people. I want to drill down on this, Bruce, because I think this is, I'm having a, a moment of an interesting re revelation, which is the lender's perspective, same as the investors, is much more interesting to me than the buyers. Because not only are you saying, is this a good business? But you're also having to say, is this the right buyer for this yes. business? So right. is this a good transaction? Is this a yeah. good transaction overall? Whereas the buyer, they may not necessarily have that level of self-awareness and all they're looking at is saying, is this a good business? Because of course I can operate it if it's a good business, right? Where I, you know, I don't think that enough people are having that level of self-reflection. So let's dig into that and see if we can give some people some really concrete value. And let's start awesome. with the business and then let's talk about the buyer. And then let's talk about the relationship between the two. What, in your opinion are the most important qualities of a great business. What do you, what's your, I know you talked about the seller and their vacations and you know, mm -hmm. how much they're in the business. What are that, but what are the core elements of a, of a great business in your opinion? So number one for me above anything else, Eric is sustainability. Is the business sustainable? Is it going to be here arguably three, five, seven, ten 10 years from now? You're getting a 10-year SBA loan, right? So anything niche or anything like that is going to be very, very difficult. So when you drill down, it's to the basics. Why are so you, you, were a big, you were a big fan of hand sanitizer import circa summer of 2021 <laughs> is what you're telling me. Masks. Bruce, Bruce <laughs> and 95 masks. <laughs> That's so great. 
Oh my God. Show me those seven A loans. Show me. Yeah. So I start with, well, why is this business in business? How do they make money? Why will they continue to make money? What's happening in the industry? What does the seller know that the buyer or I don't know? Sustainability. Drilling down deep into the business and the business model so that I know. I look at how long has the business been around? What changes have happened in the business? And what are you looking at to make these evaluations, Bruce? What type of materials are you seeing? Is it the SIM? Is it something submitted by the buyer? What's, what are you evaluating? Generally, it generally starts with the SIM, right? Because the broker is doing a good job talking about the business and they'll go give a history and say, this is when it's, who's owned it. And for the audience, I, benefits, we just got a loan Sim approved today. It means yeah, confidential information memory. It's the yeah. We just yeah. got a loan approved today. The business being sold has been around for 102 years. Wow, that's a is, is that it, you is don't it, have to ask. Is it a Catholic yeah. church? Are you I, think, I think I know what business you're talking about, Bruce. I I think you might, Kevin. I mean, you want to talk about sustainability. You want to talk about why they exist, how they've gone through changes, why they're positioned in the marketplace. I get really granular about that. I'll give you a perfect example very quick, not a knock on anybody. But if you called me up, Kevin, and said, hey, Bruce, I have a light manufacturing business that I'm interested in buying. And I said, okay, Kevin, what do they manufacture? And you said kayaks for me. The answer would be no let me see if I can refer you to a couple of SBA lenders. And the conversation will be over in six seconds. Why are like, you so hostile to kayaks, Bruce? I feel like that's a... <laughs> something happened with a kayak. Hate, yeah. Do you hate sports, Bruce? <laughs> something something with an ex-girlfriend in a kayak. I just... <laughs> how, well, how well do you know me? Oh, how man. well do you know me? Apparently, we so have the, more to I'm learn. I'm picturing Bruce in a Speedo with a kayak. Is there Was there a Speedo involved, Bruce? I'm kidding. That's, I'm editing this out, Eric. That's, that is not an appropriate comment. <laughs> Fair enough. If I get up, if I get up, you only can see the top. But wait till you see oh, the bottom. Are you wearing a Speedo right now, Bruce? That, exactly. Do not stand. This is a family show, Bruce. Do not stand up. <laughs> I do not need an explicit. Oh, my on God. Oh, my God. But to be truthful, that is exactly would be my comment. Why? Because it's a want business. Nobody needs a kayak to live. Yeah. Right? It's a discretionary purchase. It's just not something in my mind where that is a sustainable business model. I could be 100% wrong, but that's my right. And as I always tell my clients, it's my decision. I make the decisions because if I don't like it, it never goes forward. Right? So every time you're talking with the lender... You find out well, what is your bank like? Well, it's really what the lender likes, not really so much the bank, right? For so a su- new lender, su- sustainability, longevity. Why are they in business? How do they make their money? It needs What's to be essential. It sounds like you're saying it needs to be essential. Yep. It's got to be, I like need type businesses. I like businesses that I, I know are going to be around. Like you wouldn't have wanted to make that bet towards the end of the blockbuster era going, yeah, I'll finance your VCR store. Yeah. Right. I mean, 
just not a sustainable model, right? Just, just really not sustainable with new technology. For our millennial listeners, a VCR is a device that you. <laughs> well, in, in, in oh, that's so awesome, so, Kev. Give it so, and, and then tell us some bad attributes, and then give us some examples, Bruce. What's a a business that when you see it come across your desk, you're like, heck yeah, we've got a commercial roofing business. I, these are my favorite. As long as it's the right guy, it's a slam dunk. Yeah, and that's pretty. And you are right. Commercial roofing, I love it. I love commercial roofing. I've done a number of commercial roofing transactions. I'm potentially in a couple right now. I super sustainable. Why? If your roof has a leak, it doesn't make a difference whether you want to fix it or you don't. You have to. And do you look at something like, sorry to interrupt because I do want to circle back to Eric's question. It's a good one for some examples, but something like commercial roofing, are you always viewing these businesses through the 10-year 7A loan maturity lens because right now, right, something that's touching commercial real estate is probably not that interesting to a lot of people. But over 10 years, it's probably a, a reasonably safe bet. Yeah. It does that just it just has to factor into the financial analysis of how to ride, you know, this dip in in interest in commercial real estate at the moment. Do you fear for paradigm shifts like remote work and, and things like that when you look at something like commercial roofing that Maybe 10 years ago felt much more stable than it does in 2023. I mean, commercial roofing deals that I'm looking at, you know, the numbers are just on an upward trajectory. They're not down. By the way, um, I got totally, I got completely lucky with that. I just threw commercial roofing out there. I had no idea that that happened to be. No, it was great, but it's a perfect example. It's, it, it's a, per and to your point, Kevin, those are great questions and those are risks that you have to look at and what we do talk about with the searcher. You know, I remember just, this is a story. It's just, it resonates with me because it's how my mind thinks when you have experiences, you look back. But I remember many years ago, this young gentleman came to me and he wanted to buy basically an auto repair business. So they did auto repair and it was in Bethesda, Maryland. And it was on a phenomenal location. I just remember it was where two highways intersected and it was this beautiful V and we approved the transaction and I said to him, okay, you need a lease for 10 years to match the length of the loan in this particular situation because the location is conducive to the success of the business. So the SBA always suggests a 10-year lease, but it's not required, by the way. But in this particular case where the location was conducive to the success, I said, we need a 10-year lease. So... Moving the moving forward towards closing, finally says to me, Oh, well, we're meeting with the landlord on next Friday, I'm going to talk to him about renewing, you know, and getting a 10 year lease. When the seller went with the new buyer and they talked about getting an extension for the lease because the lease actually was coming up in six months, the landlord informed the seller that he was not renewing the lease for him and he would be not be giving this buyer a new lease that he was selling the property and they were converting it into condos. Ouch. In one, and in one swift moment, the seller lost his liquidity event because now he had nothing to sell. Oof. So Ouch. it was a million for a purchase price. And in an instant, the seller realized I have nothing to sell. That's, I that's just awesome. lost that liquidity. And, and it's stories like that, that really, 
and they're true and they resonate with de-risking yeah. a transaction. So for me, when Eric asked that question about starting with the business and then start looking at the borrower and who we're lending to and are they right one, the more you de-risk the deal, obviously the better it is. But I look at that as my responsibility when I'm talking with a, a searcher or a prospect to try to give them the best advice to do that and to de-risk that deal as much as possible to make sure that, to your point, we're both a lender and a partner and the investors and the salt. I mean, there's a lot riding and there's a lot pulling on those purse springs of that business. And yeah. We have a great time doing it, but it's serious stuff at the end of the day. For sure. Along the same vein, I'm I'm curious, I'm sorry to put you on the spot with That's an right. example, but is there an example, Bruce, where you've passed on a deal? You thought it was a bad idea, you passed, and in retrospect, you're just smacking yourself in the face because it was just a runaway success in this space. I'm not talking about like, yeah, I thought of investing in Apple in 1988, right? But in the small business space, I'm just, I'm curious. It's a great question. I, I don't know if I can answer it because generally I don't hear about a transaction. You don't see the follow-up. Yeah, he's, like, I, I, he's like, I don't miss, baby. I don't miss. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure but I, it, you know, let me your, give your, your upside is, is, you know, you, your upside is, hey, we get paid back. We make a nice little return and we move on. Your downside is the problem, right? So you'd rather pass on a good deal than have a few bad apples in the bunch because I, I would suspect that the and I know you've got the SBA guarantee but you know it still mucks up your statistics and whatever else I'm sure it's it's not a good thing is that right Kev yeah let me let me share a story with you so several years ago I came here for war stories yes so. this is a war so yeah, we're going to talk, talk promissory notes next so warm, warm okay. up there Bruce yep okay good <laughs> Several years ago, this searcher called me up and said, I have found a business to purchase. It was in California. I don't want to say where in California, but it's in California. And I said, okay. He said, the numbers look really strong, Bruce. The last three years, it did 800000 it did 900000 and it did a million dollars in EBITDA. I said, okay. He said, it's a $5 million purchase price. So it's a five times multiple, but think back several years ago when interest rates were lower, you know, yep. five mm -hmm. times multiples deals were getting done, right? Because you mm -hmm. had much, much lower interest rates. Quick, quick sidebar, Bruce, what are you seeing right now? What is the average multiple on a, you know, Bruce Marks size deal at the moment? Realistically, three and a quarter to four-ish is the majority of what I'm seeing. Three to four. Yeah. Three and a quarter to yep. four. Yep. yep. Okay. Yep. Please proceed. Yep. So I said, okay, it's growing off nice castle. Tell me a, a little bit about the business. And he says, they install Christmas tree lighting. I said, okay. I said, seasonal business, I guess. And he kind of chuckled and he said, yeah. He said, you know, they typically start, you know, end of October, beginning of November. Christmas tree lights are up, you know, obviously through Christmas and then by the end of January, they're typically down. I said, so, you know, nice model, you know, four months, he's making a million dollars. That's pretty good. I said, like I said before, tell me a little bit about the seller. He said, well, the seller is a 
guy's 42 years old and his, his wife's 38. You've got two young kids. Why is he selling? He's tired. And I went, tired of what? Making a million Making dollars? Making a million dollars. Right, right, I, right. So right then and there, you know, the radar goes up, you know. He says, well, you know, he's got some different business ventures and he's interested in putting his energy in this, these new business ventures. I said, but is he out on the houses installing the Christmas tree lighting? He says, no. I said, then what is he tired from? Like, and then I said, well, I'll tell you what, let him pay me the 250000 for the four months. I'll come out, I'll manage the business. He doesn't have to work a day. So he can't be tired anymore, and he'll still put 750000 in his pocket. Can I have a conversation with him? He says, you're being facetious. I said, absolutely, I'm being facetious. He's <laughs> like, but, you're being a smart ass, Bruce. Um, right, I'm being a like, smart yes. ass. I, I use a <laughs> nicer I word. Right, okay. But that's a deal I would never do, Kevin. Like, that's a deal that I absolutely 100% passed on. Now, did yeah. that deal get done? Maybe. And maybe it was a home run. But that's, to answer your question, I wanted to, in fairness, tell you, that's not a business I would ever lend to. Yeah. Seasonal. You miss one season or some of those wildfires that they have in California, yeah. whatever it may be, you're up the creek without a paddle, without a kayak yeah. even, right? So well, you're... <laughs> Just the person well, about a kayak business. <laughs> well, it, right? you know, it, it's a salient point though, Bruce, because I hear this all the time where buyers want to explain away risks and go, no, but it's going to be fine. And my feeling on that type of thing is, I think, similar to yours, which is, yes, 99% of the time it may be fine. But that 1% of the time that it is not fine, is going to be catastrophic for you. So when you're evaluating risk, you have to say, what is the likelihood? And then you have to weigh that against the magnitude of the risk. And if it's a low likelihood with a very high magnitude risk, meaning it may, it probably won't happen, but if it does, you're screwed, you right. probably should move on and find a new business, right? There's going yeah. to be risks in any acquisition. There's risks in any business. Every business has concentration issues and everything. You know, we have risks in our business. But the idea is choosing the right risks and then figuring out how to mitigate those. I don't know that I would buy a seasonal Christmas light business from somebody who's 42 either. Although I, I will say this, I'm 36 and I'm pretty tired. And Kevin, you're what? You're 40 and you're, you don't even have to answer that, Kevin. I can see you on the webcam here. So we're pretty tired. So that, that does, I appreciate what he's saying, but you make a good point, Bruce. But you know what? I don't know that Bruce would finance the acquisition of our law firm. So I guess the I, I guess the well because the me the part of it is I couldn't replace Kevin Henderson. You know Eric. So I would I wouldn't no, you I wouldn't buy Eric, our no law problem. firm. I wouldn't buy our law firm. I wouldn't buy any law firm. Right? Because even though I feel like hey, I've got some marketing. For the record, jobs. Eric means at any time prior to January first, twenty twenty four. After which you should absolutely buy our law firm. What happens in January 2024? I'm just saying, I don't want someone a year from now listening to this episode thinking, hey, you said you sure, said Dave this said is No, I mean, listen, I mean, at the status quo and the status quo of the vast majority of professional services businesses are that they are incredibly personal goodwill, relationship oriented. The work yes. is project based, mm -hmm. right? Which is another big strike. And it's personality driven. 
the marketplace, I think, not to take us down an SMB law group hole, but the marketplace is becoming a lot more accepting of content creator-led businesses. And there are private equity firms that specialize in acquiring those businesses because they realize the superpower that comes along with the 20,000 Bruce Marks followers and the War Story Saturdays and how much that 10x your 10x is your ability in business. And they get that. But then you got to wrangle the content creator and you've got to make sure that you can actually hand. So the day will come, assuming ethics permit it and whatever else, that I think we'll have a business that is hopefully saleable. Today, today is definitively not that day. So <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be installing Christmas lights for the foreseeable future, Kevin, to round that out. Maybe. <laughs> so that was the fourth part of your question, right, Eric? I mean, talking yes, about the, the second the part is the person, right? Because now, because the buyer is looking at the business. You're looking at the business and the buyer. Talk to us yeah. about, is it as simple as, hey, does this person have transferable skills that you know lead me to believe that they can handle this? Or is it deeper than that? Yeah. So it, it's definitely deeper than that, right? It's going into, and I make them answer those questions in writing. I've got a, a series of eight or nine questions about why they believe they're the right guy to buy the business, right? What are those questions? Well, what skill sets does the current seller have that you need? Oh, he's a master electrician. I'm not. Okay. If he's a small shop and he's doing a lot of the work and he's representing part of that income, well, you can't replace that because you don't have a master's electrician license. You don't, right? So, and I'm not saying I haven't done those kind of deals. I have, but it depends upon what's the support behind that. That's just for one, ex one example. If you're buying an architectural engineering firm, and again, it's that question of if you're the new owner and your employees come to you and they ask you questions and you can't answer them, yeah, yeah, yeah. what does that look like? You, know, you don't know what you don't know. But that's the qualitative piece, right? That's the judgment call piece. Have you ever had an experience, Bruce, where the person, because there's this theory that in, in business, oftentimes we will get ourselves promoted until we promote ourselves over our head, if that makes sense. The average person ends up working a job that they frankly are not qualified for and should have stopped one level below, right? Mm -hmm. Is there ever an instance where you look at somebody and you go, yes, this is a tree trimming business. Yes, you've worked in tree trimming for 15 years. Heck, you may have even worked within the business you're trying to buy, but I just look at you and I go, this dude can't hack it. Like this dude's just not cut out for this. You ever make those type of judgment calls? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because let's say you're working in that business for 15 years and you were the one doing the tree trimming and you're the one out there knowing the customers but you don't know anything about the financial aspects of that business. You don't know how they purchase supplies. It's like the person coming in saying, I want to buy a restaurant. Why? I like to eat. Well, everybody likes to eat. That doesn't mean you should own a restaurant, right? Like you don't know how to buy. You don't know how to, whether the food is perishable, how long, what you have to do for the vegetable, you know, all the things that go into running a restaurant. But are you telling me you won't finance our acquisition of a pizza parlor? I was Orlando? just going to make that comment, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to make. And, and I was just wondering I, if I you were like going to do was, that. 
I felt like he was subtweeting me there. I felt like he was attacking me and you solidified. So Bruce, I don't appreciate that. We will be sending our, our Domino's people. Well, sorry. I, I didn't know this. I, I, I didn't know I, this was your setup. This, this, guys, this, this is, this is breaking. This is, this is hot off the pizza oven here to use a pizza pun. But I, guys, I got a pizza sponsorship. And I'm going to awesome. be going out with some sponsored pizza content today. That's awesome. Is it good pizza? It's so I, I will say to you, it's much, a sponsored content. It's, it's so not, this is a it's box. not a pizza place. It's a pizza ancillary business. So, okay. It is a pizza service provider, if you will. Wow. And I'm pretty excited about you. that. I know. I feel like I pulled off a miracle because an, a- an average, an average man such as myself, you know, an average man such as myself pulling such an extraordinary feat as receiving a pizza sponsorship. Really, I'm, I'm about to shut down the podcast, the law firm. <laughs> I mean, this is well, that's pretty this, this, this may be Bruce, the it last. Turns out I'm in search of a new co host if you're interested. This, guys, this may be the last SB content that I do. So, the reason for this podcast was interviewing me to see if I could become a host. Now <laughs> I get it. Okay, we do. We need to have Bruce back once in a while to, to guest host because you're, you're awesome, Bruce. Actually, let's talk about your book a little bit. I want to hear about the book because your, your writing ability is fantastic. And for those of you who don't know, Bruce runs a War Story Saturdays where he tells really pointed stories from the trenches of helping people buy businesses. One of which is the story of the promissory note. And we'll get to the book in just a second, but one of your most prolific tweets ever was the story of the promissory note, the seller who did not offer a promissory note and it ended as badly as an acquisition could conceivably end. Tell us, just tell us just the, for those that haven't read the story, give us just the highlights of what happened there. Yeah. Should we, should we issue a trigger warning here? Yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. should. We should. Because it, it's it's a story that has, you know, as sad of an ending as conceivably I, possible. So I, um, I chuckle uncomfortably, but yeah, the, the story does involve suicide. So yeah, yeah that's, just that's for anybody who's, who's, and I never said that. that in your story, but it's that, yeah. Sure. So yeah. look at, you know, when in this particular story, business, quote unquote, the business loan was made based upon transferable skills that we just talked about, Eric, you know, bought the business. The seller did not take a note. When the loan closed, the seller said to the buyer, deal fatigue is set in. It's taken a while to get to the closing table. I'm going to take a couple of weeks vacation and then I'll come back and help you transition the business. A couple of weeks went by, the seller reached out to the I mean, the buyer reached out to the seller, asked him if he was coming in on Monday. The seller said he needed one more week and that he'd be in the following week. That week went by. The buyer reached back out to the seller, wasn't able to get in touch with him. Cell phone was disconnected. All types of communication were lost. And ultimately, four months into the business, the business failed. The person had signed up personal guarantee. He had pledged his house. He had put in the majority of his money. So he lost his investment. While the business was going down, he lost his post-closing liquidity. His marriage was in trouble as a result of it. You can imagine the strain that that causes. And ultimately, because he had pledged his house as collateral and there was a decent amount of equity, the bank had notified them that they were obviously going after the house. 
and it was too much for the buyer and he ultimately committed suicide. And, you know, it's stories like those that, again, in, in all fairness, it, I did not make this loan. It was somebody that I worked with who did. But in this, I didn't mention in the war story because there's only so much that you can mention. I was literally in Chicago when the wife of the deceased owner called into the bank to talk about what had happened and why they couldn't have been reached. And it, it was as heart-wrenching. It's still very tough to even think about, to be transparent. It's, yeah. it, it was yeah. just, it was the worst thing that you could, you know, that you'd, you'd want to experience. And I would never want to experience that. And I think that, you know, you learn from, we learn from life's lessons. That's what we do. I say this all the time today. I'm the best at what it is I do, but tomorrow I'll be even better because every day you learn. And the saying of, I wish I knew then what I know now can never be because you don't live it and you don't experience it and you don't know it and you can't know it as many times as people tell you. You think back in both, you know, you, Kevin, and you, Eric, think back five or six years ago where you were, where you are today, how different that is. But what you know today versus what you knew six years ago. And then when you multiply that by 25 or 30 years or been in this game doing what I've been doing for 37 years, there's a lot that you have to give back. And I hope yeah. that by sharing the stories that it resonates with people and it gives them a perspective. It's always interesting to see that people ask me, well, what industry was it in? Or they try to get granular on the sure. detail. It's yep. not the details that matter. Yeah, they're trying to prescribe right. it to make sure they can, you know, make sure they don't follow that path, which I get, right? That's our natural tendency. We want to avoid the bear trap that the last guy lost his arm in, right? But yeah. but it's a really important point because business has real consequences. And I, you know, I suspect we need to zoom out just a little bit so we don't horrify people. That's a, you know, a very rare occurrence within very rare business, you know, extremely rare occurrence, but you know, there's, there's, there's lives behind these loans and behind these acquisitions. And the yes, objective is. is to improve it, right. And to do something different and unique and yeah. get control of your time and put yourself in a better position to support your family. And when it goes the other direction, you know, obviously we can see that it has, you know, pretty powerful implications. But your chief takeaway from that, if you had one, sounds like it's the make sure that the seller always has really meaningful screws to them so that they are in a position that the business suffers, that they have a reason, meaning financial, to come and save the business, right? To at least help you save the business. Yeah, and a transition plan. I mean... You know, we see it a lot of times where in a change of ownership, the seller says, okay, I want compensation of X. And so you're paying him. You know, I would love to see it more like at the end of the three months, if you have done exactly what I have needed to be done and that has been specified out, then you get your money because it's performance base. It's yeah. like, you know, to me. Well, I, I'll it, remind you that, that that wouldn't be SBA, SBA eligible, Bruce, but something no, similar. No, to no, no. I'm not saying a no paying like that. I'm saying if you're in your transition plan. 
So yes, I buy yeah, some business. sort of. Are you I, saying some I'm sort saying, of? I'm going to pay you ten thousand dollars a month for consulting for the first three months, right? So you're going to pay him thirty grand for the transition. I would love to see a structured. I'm going to pay you the thirty grand, but you're going to get it at day ninety. Yeah, because well, you've performed and you've done what I've asked you to do. And it's the transition plan that then becomes executable. And then he's remunerated for what he's done. It's like a contractor, Eric, who does work. Maybe he gets yeah. a little bit up front, but at, he gets paid at the end of the job when the job is complete. When it's done. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't want to give away our negotiating positions or say too much because, you know, maybe somebody will listen to this someday, but there are really powerful ways to make sure that the seller is even more beholden than that, right? If the thing goes down the drain, to conceivably go after them for the entirety of the purchase price. No, well, it, you don't even want to get it. But that's my well, point. You, you don't want to get no, it. You don't want to get into the accident. That's right. You prevent it up front. Prevent but it. Sometimes it's like brushing it your teeth. If, it does, if you're doing a good job, you're not going to get cavities. You don't want to wait till the end and go, okay, well, I got a cavity now, I'll brush my teeth, right? So, I mean, it's just like, to me, it's just, when I talk about seller notes or I talk about what the seller is going to do to help in that transition, if they're not a creditor in it, they've got no skin in the game left other than, hey, I've gotten my money. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, oh, well. That's the point of it. And yep. the point is, is try to avoid that if you can. Yeah, I'm not well, buying you. Right, go ahead, Kevin. I was just going to say, and I think that's the takeaway, right? Because legally, there's no obligation for the seller to have any skin in the game after closing. And so in order to do that and protect against these types of scenarios, you have to be thoughtful about how you negotiate and structure the deal, whether that's a note, whether that's consulting and transition period or something. But to expect that you're going to take over this business, the seller is going to go sailing in the Caribbean and when things are difficult five months down the road, you're going to pick up the phone and they're going to come running that there's no obligation and you've, you've got to be thoughtful in structuring these deals right. to make sure that they have a reason to come. Right. You right. know, Will Smith, he has a good podcast called Acquiring Minds. He had somebody out recently anonymous because they're still in the trenches with an acquisition that may fail. And they're in their acquisition. The seller did not even attend the announcement. The seller got the check and just left and left the new buyer to go stand in front of those employees and announce that the business had been sold. And as you can imagine, the whole mm. thing has been a debacle. And I think she, the acquirer's female, said at the end that there's a six, she said she believes there's a 60% chance that she gets through it, but 40% chance that she doesn't. And I wanted to scream the whole time, like, how can you buy a business and allow the yep. seller to even conceivably have the opportunity to walk away on day right. one? Because they'll board a boat for the Caribbean dude and they may not come back. So even if they're a good person that would otherwise do it gratuitously out of the kindness of their heart, dude, this, these sellers, some of these sellers are 70 plus years old. They're exhausted. You think your 40 year old was tired? You know, go talk to that 70 year old SMB owner that just got a big check. When Eric was a first year associate working with me, he's told the story before working with me at a prior law firm, he went on a vacation to Hawaii and legitimately <laughs> almost did not come home. You know, people, people have emotional experiences and you do not want to have a seller who gets a big check, 
takes a vacation. That's not who you want to be relying on. You want to know that they've got yeah. 500000 a million bucks, the whole purchase price sitting in the balance if they don't come and help you save that business. Otherwise, I wouldn't buy a business. I would not, I would not go and do it. I would not do it. I'd rather work a W-2 job than put myself in that position. But if you go out and you hire a lawyer, and this is not a plug for us, it's a plug for being smart in your transaction and hiring right advisors. Because if you go out and you're okay. like, hey, I just need a purchase agreement. I don't, doesn't need to be anything special. I need a $500 purchase agreement off the shelf. Those are the type of implications and those are the type of blind spots that you're leaving open in the most important transaction of your life. And it's one thing when your deal's south of a million and a half dollars, right? And it's, you know, home purchase level money, even though that's significant. It's a whole other thing when you're talking about personally guaranteeing $5 million of money. You may, this thing blows up and you gotta go get, get a job to pay it back. You may never dig out of that hole. Sure. So it's, it's serious. It's the implications are serious. Serious. Let's pause mm-hmm. there, Bruce. And let's one last, cause we've been on for a long time now. Plug your book. Let's talk about your book and what you got going on and anything else you want to plug. No. So we, um, the keys to authenticity, that's the name of the book, the keys to authenticity. It's several co-authors. The book is just, uh, Oh, 22 or 23 chapters written by several people about being authentic and stories of that they can share with business folks. And it's a great read. It's co-authored with a guy named Jack Canfield who, who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul, probably what he's very most famous for. And it's just, a, I think I've heard of that. Huh? You've never, heard, you've heard of it. I think I've heard yeah, of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, got a great opportunity to, to, you know, participate in the book and thrilled to have that opportunity and how do you know, know share Jack? That's, that's really impressive. Not to interrupt yeah, you, so, but that's, yeah, that's fine. You know, to share, share my story and, you know, add a little bit of tidbits of wisdom to those that, that feel like spending 20 bucks and reading a book. <laughs> so, Heck, yeah. you know, I can't, I I, you're, you're, so you, I tried to buy a copy and you're sold out. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's back now. So I think it's back on Amazon. So I think they've replenished some, but that's a good thing, right? So it's a great thing. Yeah. I think yeah. you're being, I think you're being too modest, Bruce. Um, but you know, I told you guys, you know, it's, I don't like, I don't like, I think you need to plug everyone to go out and buy that book. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, but I'm that'd really, be like I'm asking to people it. on Twitter to follow me, Kevin, and I don't do that. Right. So yeah, I never do that. Uh, Eric will do it for you. <laughs> it's fine. You should follow Bruce. My handle is SBA Marks, SBA B Marks, right? On Twitter. SBA. Yeah, at SBA. Yeah. On X, excuse me. On X. X. And, and, and Bruce is one of the people that, if you're a content creator or just interested in business buying, like Bruce is stuck to substance, right? Whereas I've gone down crazy rabbit holes trying to keep up with the algorithm and just have fun with it, tweeting about the Barbie movie and whatever else. Bruce is nothing but SMB war stories and high quality content. And he's got over 20,000 followers. And there are very few people, my partner included, that can stick to substance and gain a following. It's hard. It's really hard to be, you know, a source of knowledge and have people want to continue to read your stuff. So kudos to you. Kudos to both of you, actually, Kevin, because you do a great job of that as well. So awesome. So follow Bruce, buy his book. Kevin, I'll give you the final word. 
I have no final words other than thank you, Bruce. It's been a, it's been a pleasure as it always is. Always good to catch up with you. Thank you. And appreciate you sharing some words of wisdom for the listeners. I think a lot of this has been invaluable for people. Thank you. So thanks I, for coming on. I greatly appreciate you having me and look forward to next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.